Fuck it, we'll do it live. We're live. How are you doing? <laughs> How are you, Rebecca? I'm good, yes. I'm uh, fine and dandy, ready to party. Hell yeah, you are. In Blackpool. Yeah, so for anyone who is interested, so if you want to put the mic just where mine is. So we're trying to, we're on a bit of a tight schedule today. I'm very busy with work. Becca's got a very busy day. We missed Halloween, I'm afraid. But The Simpsons puts out Treehouse of Horror in November, so why can't we? This is the last episode of our spooky season we're going to get into today. We're going to talk about Atumno, Angband, and the concept of hell itself. Spooky. And if you're joining us for the first time, I'm Chris. This is my wife, Rebecca. Hello. 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 We have a talking podcast, which you're listening to right now, which is amazing if you've learned how to work Spotify or Apple without being able to fucking read. And we talk about Tolkien in a very relaxed, broken down way. I introduce some of the more concept pieces of law, as if we're in the pub talking to each other. Even though currently I have to be on theme and drink tea out of a pumpkin mug. Yes, yes. We're recording this in the middle of the day during my, uh, well, I'm taking lunch from work. Because it's just, it's a bit of a hectic schedule. Now, just to, to keep it all a bit light... Before we get into the the gruesome stuff, have you watched any of the TikToks I sent you this morning? No. Okay, great. I've got a good joke for you then. What's better than eating a mandarin? Eating a mandar out. (laughs) Do you want me to tell my joke? Oh, go on. Yeah, go on. Your joke. Why don't? Oh, I think I've already done this one, haven't I? I've already done it on the podcast. Tastes like sheet. No, no, no. You've just ruined the fucking punchline. (laughs) I've not heard the joke. Do you want to carry on? I'm not even going to fix that with editing. Why do monsters not eat ghosts? Oh, I don't know. Why? Because they taste like sheet. <laughs> well, yours was more on brand. It was more on brand. Right, okay. I'm doing... Do you know I'm doing exactly what I was going to criticise people for. Today, we're going to talk about Angband, Atumno, the two fortresses of Morgoth in Middle-earth and Beleriand at the beginning of the world and in the First Age. However... Whilst doing my research for this, what really, really annoyed me is I saw a 17-minute video by one, I'm not going to name him, but a quite a well-known YouTuber for, well, in the Tolkien... And his name, his name rhymes with Shmushmotion. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, he's a well-known YouTuber within the, 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 the realms of Tolkien. And I saw a 17-minute video on a Tumno, and I was like, get in. There's not a great deal of information about it. And I will fully admit today... Some of it is a little bit extra that will give it flavour. But I was like, okay, great. It was five minutes of content with 12 minutes of describing the events around it about like how there was a war at the beginning for the for the safety of the elves and stuff like that. So I was watching it and I was like, you motherfucker, you have got the same amount of information. I'm not learning anything new here. You give it like you've you've reeled me in with a tumno. And you're talking about something completely different, you motherfucker. So did you, like, triple, quadruple time the video then? I just clicked off it. I was like, you bitch. <laughs> I felt like Dennis Reynolds. I was like, you... I will Always cut, the nuclear option. I will cut you into a million little pieces and display you in a glass case, you bitch. Did you send him, like, some of his friend's fingers in the post? No, no, no. Right. So, we're, we're going to talk about Autumno, which was the uh, hell, literal hell on earth. Angband also literal hell on earth both built very deep underground angband less so but spooky but we're also going to talk about hell itself so i'm going to start by setting the tone for what we're going to talk about today right you need to imagine wherever if you're listening to this now unless you're driving if you're driving pull over hopefully it's somewhere dark and spooky i want you to pull over i want you to get in your back seat i want you to get very comfortable pop your legs up and i want you to close your eyes and listen to this because we're gonna I'm gonna start with something that's completely nothing to do with Tolkien. Okay? There is a horror writer called Clive Barker. I've mentioned him quite a few times on the podcast. He is uh he's an author, but he's also the guy who he directed, I think, the first Hellraiser film because he wrote the novella that it was based on. So when you see Pinhead, Cenobite, blah blah blah, all that shit, that comes from him. Uh same as like Rawhead Rex and, and stuff like that. So he's a very good horror writer. And he's got a series of short stories called The Books of Blood, okay? One of, right, okay, you're going to need to stop that now. Sorry. One of these Books of Blood is called, uh, the short story is called Down Satan, 
And it is literally, it's about 15 minutes of an audio book, so it's only a few pages of actual writing. But it is about a billionaire who becomes very disillusioned with the world and tries to find his faith again by tempting Satan. His plan is that if he puts his immortal soul in danger, God will rescue him. And he thinks, I can do this by summoning Satan and God will step in and sweep me from his arms. So to summon Satan, this man decides to build a literal hell on earth. It's about the size of 12 cathedrals, so it's nowhere near the size of a tumno, which we're going to talk about. But I want to set the tone by what a potential hell on earth could look like. And I wanted to go a bit spooky with it. So let me read, right? This comes from the Books of Blood from Down Satan. The finished designs owned nothing... Oh, sorry, the finished designs owed something to Desard and to Dante and something more to Freud and Kraft Ebbing. But there was also much there that no mind had conceived of before or at least ever dared set to paper. A site in North Africa was chosen and work on Gregorius's new hell began. Everything about the project broke the records. Its foundations were vaster, its walls thicker, its plumbing more elaborate than any edifice hitherto attempted. The finished building was the size of a half a dozen cathedrals and boasted every facility the angel of the pit could desire. Fires burned behind its walls, so that to walk in many of its corridors was almost unendurable agony. The rooms off those corridors were fitted with every imaginable device of persecution. The needle, the rack, the dark. That the genius of Satan's torturers be given fair employ. There were ovens large enough to cremate families, pools deep enough to drown generations. There are then, he goes on to describe descriptions of roiling excrement baths and rooms so cold that they would freeze the piss in your bladder. So that is what I want you to imagine today when we're talking about a Tumno and Angban. This is literal hell on earth. It's the marshalling place and the and it's the chief citadels of evil in the world. But to give it a much more human view, I wanted to set the scene of what a hell on earth might look like. Because a lot of the time, I think people just think, ooh, big, scary, dark, gothic. But it is... No, even being in, like, North Africa, you're very close to the equator. Mm. Very, very, very hot. Yep. For someone who's British... <laughs> that is hell. Oof. That is hell. Yeah, being, being somewhere hot. We would never stop complaining. So, Autumno... This was the first of Morgoth's strongholds and the greatest. Although, Angband is the much more well-known name. Everybody seems to know Angband. Not a great many people know Tumno. But that's just where the real G's come in. Although after listening to this episode, you'll know as much as the rest of us, which is nice. And the creation of Tumno is what is responsible for that region of the world being called the Northern Wastes. So if you see on, well, you can look at any of the maps we've got in, in my office, right in, actually the one over there on near Andural is probably better, right there at the top of the world, there's the Northern Mountains. Behind that, uh, they go east to west, so you've got, see the Misty Mountains go north to south? Yeah. And then the Arid Luin goes north to south as well, but then you've got the the Iron Hills that go across. It, it's, it's pretty much them. Pretty much everything past that is called the Northern Wastes. And that's because, right in the beginning, do you remember... Before the trees, the world was lit by two lamps. Yeah. And Morgoth built, he got kicked, he, he fled the world for a bit. And then when everything was nice at Almarin, when the world was perfect, he came back and then beyond the light of the northern lamp, which was Illuin, uh, I think. I'll fact check myself in a minute. He, he was beyond the light of Illuin and he started to delve deep north behind the mountains. And from there, his sickness spread into the world, and that's why it's called the Northern Wastes, because that's where he used to have his base. And the headline is, just like the dwarves would do with Khazad-dûm, he delved greedily and deep, and he filled Atumno with deep pits full of fire and fallen Aino and monsters. And these monsters are the ones we've talked about before during the Spring of Arda. Do you know when everything was asleep before? Well, just before the Spring of Arda. Yeah. Why do you have to asleep? play footsie with me while you're talking about going in deep? That's just nice. And saying it in a sexy voice. Sexy. 
So we're talking about hell here. Yeah, it was full of deep pits, full of fire, and I'm a bit of a goth. We can't make hell sexy. <laughs> the deep pits full. I have seen a big titty devil more than I've seen a scary <laughs> devil. So don't you say hell's not sexy. In fact, the more sex you have, the more to hell you go. Uh, allegedly. Maybe. If you're Catholic. <laughs> anyway, the monsters that were in Atumno were the twisted versions of animals that were created during the Spring of Arda. Uh, and, you know, I've brought this up before, but Tolkien seemed to have fucking mad beef with rhinos and elephants. And given the line of, the, you know, the description I'm about to read, you know, concerning Atumno, there's a good quote from the Silmarillion that describes these events. Now Melkor began the delving and building of a vast fortress deep under the earth, beneath dark mountains where the beams of Iluin were cold and dim. That stronghold was named Utumno. And though the Valar knew naught of it as yet, nonetheless the evil of Melkor and the blight of his hatred flowed out thence, and the spring of Arda was marred. Green things fell sick and rotted, Rivers were choked with weeds and slime, and fens were made, rank and poisonous, the breeding place of flies. And forests grew dark and perilous, the haunts of fear, and beasts became monsters of horn and ivory that dyed the earth with blood. So, what, what do you think of that? How does that sound? I think it reminds me of War of the World. Sorry, say that again. War of the Worlds. You think it reminds you of War of the World? The fact that... Um, so this is like Jeff Wayne, War of the World-ish. Yeah. Am I going forwards or backwards? Just bring the mic closer to your fucking face. You went. I was trying you to... You did different I, directions. I was trying to non-verbally tell you to bring the mic closer to your face. Go on, sorry, carry on. It's right. like War of the Worlds. So, the War of the Worlds book. Yeah. Um, and Jeff Wayne's version. Mm-hmm. Just like the creeping weeds. Like, yeah, it just reminds me of that. Oh, okay, right. Wells' description. Pull the mic closer to your face so the lip, till your lips are almost touching the guard. Right? But then I can't tell but M- touch much the be- thing. That's fine, just... Lick I'll it. caress it. <laughs> caress it. I'll let my beard tickle it all the time. I don't give a fuck. I'll let my nose hair tickle it. Yeah, this whole 31st episode, we've been doing this um, about nine months now. It's a different chair. I've only just started <laughs> using this chair. That's a fucking different chair. It is a different chair. I usually sit in our leather armchair, and now I'm sitting in a proper upright seat. Right, okay. So, um, do you remember Gemma, the artist who did that? Yes. So, she's recently done a Middle Earth map print. I think I showed you, didn't I? Yes. Where she'd done that, right? So she started to sell that. So I got to thinking, and I messaged her, and I said, what's the biggest size of paper? I didn't exactly say it like <laughs> that, but she understood what I meant when I said, what's big? Yeah. And apparently there is a pa- piece of paper called A1, okay? Yeah. So. It would make sense. Yes. My plan is to commission with Gemma a composite map. Do you know, I've always said I always want a composite map of Middle Earth and Beleriand yes. and that, and, and I can't find a good one, right? So I was thinking I'd commission Gemma to do it and we'd work on it together, right? So I want to do a map, I want to have a map of Middle Earth as we know it, I want Beleriand as in the first age and Numenor as in the second age. But that would give us a very good opportunity to do something that hasn't really been done before. And do you know what that is? Um, I'm not sure. It would be to pinpoint the location of Autumno, because nobody is really sure where Autumno lays. We just know it was delved behind the northern... north. Yeah, we just know it's north of the Iron Mountains, or like the, the, those mountains that go across the top of the world. We don't... Nobody really knows. Uh, Angband is a little bit easier to pin down, because it's towards the northwest, because it was the vanguard, it was the first citadel to protect Autumno if the Valar ever attacked again. Yeah. But Autumno, we don't know where. So I was I was saying to Gemma, like, that would be one of the things I would love to do is to do it. And, and unfortunately, it wouldn't be as easy a ride as the first piece of art we got from her, where I was like, oh, here's some books I like, and this is what I use for the research, and dwarves, mint. So is this my time to tell you that um, I've commissioned a sculpture 
of Larry <laughs> Lamb nude. Oh, I'd love that. But no, no money is exchanged I, hands. I don't... I, you but, have just told me about this on the podcast. Where is this going? On your wall? I don't know. Uh, it, it maybe is our wall. I don't know how big A1 is. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I mean, I never stop you with your ideas. I might just give my opinion and then you just ignore it. But um, Well, yeah. any, anyway, the point it being... It sounds fun. It does, doesn't it? The point being, no money's exchanged hands. Don't worry, it's not that yet. But the idea being, that would be a perfect time to do it because nobody knows where Otumno is. And we all we know, it's in the north. But we can make a, a fair guess that it's kind of like central northy. I don't think it's going to be as far away as the northeast of Middle Earth. I think between, in the middle between like true north of Middle it's Earth. It's going to be Yorkshire. No, 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 no. Like it's it's much better. So it's, it's if we're looking at that, like let's say the Iron Sheffield. Mountains. Just, no, you're just you're just saying places now. It's fuck all to do with Yorkshire. Eriador would be Yorkshire, where the hobbits live. If ah, we're doing it like right, that. Okay. It'd be far, far away in the north, but we don't know how. We don't know how far to the west it would be. Okay. But it can't be a super duper far, because there was t- there'd be tunnels connecting Angband and Otumno, for the armies to move. So, who knows? I think maybe it might be north of Eriador, which you know where the the hobbits live. So, is there any animals near there that are relatively close to rhinos and elephants? There was, there was, but again, we don't know because if it was in Beleriand, then it would have sank. Because you could look at the zoology, couldn't you? Yeah, you could. Oh, yeah, you could. um, Like the herbology around that area and what's similar. I bet we could, but something weird must have happened at some point because the Oliphants, even if they originated in the north, then were, were south with the Haradrim. Or east, Ooh, I, don't. I think olifants came from the south, so they must I think have. It's a good choice of animal by uh, Tolkien. Yeah, they must, because they must have migrated somewhere. The skin of like a rhino or an elephant kind of mimics the kind of tunneling and the deep gashes into the earth. It's just it's weird that he would say that it's it's beasts of horn and ivory that were the evil twisted ones. Because that's like, like colonial trade and. Oh yeah, he, he was born in South Africa, yeah, wasn't he? Oh so, shit. Oh fuck! Do you know that I was n- an evil. I've never considered trading. that. Yeah, the trading in horn, obviously, and that that's yeah, quite evil for the animals. Ooh, go Rebecca! Bloody hell! Right, I do have some brains. Yeah, so so let's uh, let's move on. So from Utumno, Morgoth built his armies, and during the Spring of Arda, you know, when Tulkas and Nessa got married and they were having a party, and then yeah. when they fell asleep, he attacked and yeah. and ruined the lamps. So it was his armies he sent forth from Otumno then, as well as his corrupting influence. And if you want to learn more about the Spring of Arda and, and how Melkor or Morgoth, as he's later come to be known, fucked up the world for everybody forever, uh, I think it's like our sixth episode was like the Spring of Arda. So go back and have a look, and uh, you, you'll, you'll see that period in a bit more detail. But the result of this was the two lamps were broken, yeah. And the world, again, dark. was plunged back into the darkness. The dark. And Arda was changed forever. And unfortunately, it will never again be that perfect. It won't again be that perfect place of peace that the Valar had made and envisioned. But who knows what will happen when Eru remakes the world again and the dwarves help. And, you know, humans sing and elves, something happens to the elves. Nobody knows what's going to happen to the elves. The elves don't know, and it's a cause of quite a bit of um, anxiety, actually. Mm. This, you elves could have anxiety. Oh, it's really bad. So I this is a bit of a joke for everybody who I, I talk to in our book club, but I would recommend anybody, if you really want to have a, an in-depth look at, like, the, the, psyche, the psyche of an elf and... Like where humans came from, like their creation story and some like deep philosophical stuff. There is a, a small text called the Athrabeth Finrod Ar Andreth. And it's a conversation between Finrod, uh, obviously an elf king, and Andreth, a human woman who was in love with an elf. And it, it's a conversation that they have uh, on a night. And it's really good. And that, uh, there's a lot of like really good philosophical stuff that comes from that. But anyway, we digest. So we don't know where Atumno is. We do know where Angband was. And 
it was yeah so when the lamps were broken we've already covered that's when the world was broken the continents were formed and after this the Valar buggered off yeah they went west to the, the newly formed continent of Amman but going back to Atumno there was a war fought for the safety of the elves okay that was called the war of the powers mm-hmm. and the elves the earliest elves so Círdan and uh, a couple of like some of the Vanyar and Noldor who were in Amman they would have seen this but only from a great distance because they remember that all they could see was lights in the sky and fire in the north yeah that was the Valar waging war on Atumno it was a very long siege and they couldn't break the gates. I think I saw something say like a thousand years, two thousand years or something, where they were trying to get through the gates of Atumno, but because of the damage Melkor had caused to the planet, like to Arda, they most of their power was spent from trying to stop the world ripping itself apart. So they couldn't they weren't at that full strength. They couldn't dedicate all of their energy to that. Yes, exactly. And eventually they broke in. They they peeled they literally peeled the roof back. Like they peeled the ground back of Atumno. Yeah. And they and Tulkas, the the hardest will add in the Valar, went down into the deepest pits where Morgoth was hiding and he chucked him in the chain Angino, which uh, obviously is a, a chain that binds him, and he was taken to stand trial. And then from there he was chucked into Mandos, the halls of Mandos where he couldn't escape for three long ages which I think was in about another 2,000 years-ish. But that's where Morgoth went. So the Valar destroyed what they could and just went about their business, okay? But what they didn't know was that he had delved Autumno so deep and there were horrors in there so much that they didn't find everything. And they, like, crept out. They just left, yeah, and the evil things were there. They hid and they waited and they were cruel to each other and as I mentioned it's for the sake of the elves that this was happened but one of the things that they didn't find if you go down this origin story is they didn't find the the torture rooms where the elves were turned into orcs because we know that elves were kidnapped at the beginning right from Quivainen and they still tell stories of the darkness in the woods about Quivain and and that's why they were scared yeah. of Oromir the hunter when he first came to them because you know so it's by these subtle and cruel arts that the bit I read about Clive but from Clive Barker at the beginning that makes me think that the slow and cruel arts he used to turn elves into walks okay was was like rooms like that yeah you know to, to torture all the goodness out of them but one of the things the Valar didn't discover which is probably the most terrifying creatures that Morgoth had on offer was the Balrogs. Dun, dun, dun. The demonic fallen Ainur of Flame who had hearts of darkness and cruel whips. And I think that while he was gone, Sauron was out and about. He was shitting his pants, didn't dare go anywhere. The, the, the Balrogs will have been running the show day to day, I imagine. Like, they were the biggest... It's like prison rules. They were the biggest ones around, the, the cruelest ones. So while Dad's gone... They'd rule with an iron fist. Yeah. And I'm also going to throw this out there as well, right? Do you know where I think was in the uh, where I think was in a tumnor that wasn't discovered by the Valar? The nameless things. I think they were there. I think that if they were going to originate anywhere, the nameless things would be in a tumnor. And I'll tell you for why. The nameless things are first encountered by the fellowship outside the walls of Moria, outside the gates of Moria, right? Yeah. Then when Gandalf falls into the, the pits over the bridge of, of Khazad Doom, he and the Balrog f- like run, like they're fighting and running for days and days and days. And Gandalf says that um, he encountered nameless things that gnaw at the roots of the world that live under the mountains. So it's been about 6,000 years, long, much longer since Atumno was on roof, but 6,000 years-ish from the first age. I think in that time, these deepest, darkest corners they, that gnaw at the roots of the world, they will have tunneled right the way from the far north all the way down the spine of the Misty Mountains to where Gandalf was encountering them. Yeah. 
And in fact, we encountered them earlier than that because in The Hobbit, when Bilbo is um, like talking to Gollum, they're right under the Misty Mountains. Yeah. There's a passage to something to the effect that um, there is blind creatures in the dark down there that are like like gnawing at the world and, and chewing around and stuff. So that there's some reference to them a long time previously. But I think if they're going to have an origin in world that the nameless things would be horrors that Morgoth shut into a deep dark pit and that when they were left to fester for they that just long tunneled out. they just tunneled out and they were into the world and they eschewed light they didn't want it they just went under the mountains and have been there ever since like hungry rats yeah because you know the Valar they, they didn't discover everything we've already mentioned that like two or three times now so that means they would have been left alone in kind of like relative safety yeah because if they like, if even evil things don't want to go near you because of how unsettling and eldritch you are, you know, I think you're like as long as you're left alone. So yeah, that's me. That's me staking my claim that you I could think get even worse. Or you could get mad with hunger. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Hunger could you drive mad them mad with lust for things? Mm. Exactly. Like uh, so. Yeah. That's uh, that. That's me. So that that's pretty much it for a tumnal. But obviously, we're still not done. So Morgoth is in the pen. He mm. gets his he gets his teardrop tattoo on his eye. <laughs> he gets his spiderweb tattoo on his elbow. Right. He joins a couple of gangs in Mandos. And then when he gets out, he's like, "I'm institutionalized, but I ain't going back to the pen." <laughs> so just like a lot of criminals, Morgoth falls into recidivism. He commits crime again when he's released. And we're skipping over this massively. He kills the trees, flees back to Middle Earth, and when he gets back, he abandons Atumno. It's done. It's gone. Can't do it anymore. Start a new one. It's unroofed. No, well, he's already started a new one. He goes to his his, his second place, which is the more famous. He takes up residence in Angband, mm. and Angband means Iron Hell. I just always think of something else. Angbang. Yeah. Yeah. There's a. Oh, fuck, I'm sorry, Anuli. Um, there's a there's a lass I know in the, in the book club. She's from f- fucking Finland, I think. Pretty Lippin sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Finland. Anyway, she's a degenerate angbanger. So there is a name for those people who think Sauron and Morgoth are gay and sexy. <laughs> that's that's not what I was one like kind of going for. It was just oh, right. that it always kind of makes me think of gangbang. Oh, gang, oh, gang bang, not ang bang. No, not ang bang. Is ang bang a thing? Well, I've just said it is, yeah. There's, there's a certain degenerate subset of the Tolkien fandom who, uh, I think the term is shipping. They ship Morgoth and Sauron together. Um, and I remember when I was doing research for our dark side of the fandom, do you know, the, the erotic stories yeah, one. Yeah, that was fun. Oh, yeah, it was. We'll do, do it we'll, again. we'll do another one, yeah. There was... Um, there was one that was really fucking dark and it was about Morgoth teaching Sauron how to torture an elf mm. and it ended with them fucking while like Sauron was obviously taking it and he had his hand wrapped around an elf's heart and as like he came he crushed it oh. while the elf was obviously still alive up until that point it was really fucking dark so yeah it was it's, but anyway these degenerate angbangers are out there but that's where it, that's Everyone's where it came Everyone's got from. their own group. Everyone's got their foibles. But yes, uh, Sauron originally was the commander of Angband. And it was raised there on the western, the, towards the, the western shore of Beleriand in the north as a shield in case the Valar ever attacked again. And it served as a fortress and an armory. And when Atumno was broken and Morgoth eventually comes back, Sauron, uh, oh actually no sorry just before this, um, Sauron was probably one of the servants who hid in a very deep pit and escaped the Valar for this, like he was one of the ones who hid just like the Balrog so that they weren't found yeah and then when Morgoth returned to Angband he needed to make some changes about the place so he raised the three peaks called Thangorodrim, which we've talked about before right? Yeah and these mountains, now I thought I was such a clever bastard I was having a discussion a few months ago, right? And I was like, oh, do you know what? Thangorodrim's always spewing smoke. I think it's a good theory that Morgoth used them as chimneys and it was made from delving the pits and it was just heaps of slag. 
Anyway, it turns out it's not a theory. That is actually what they are. And I just completely forgot that I'd read about it. So, Fangorod... You read something and then thought it was your, yeah, your idea. Much, yeah, yeah. And, and that's a very egregious sin to commit with Tolkien, isn't it? That's very bad. So, what he did was he raised the three peaks of slag and it was like full mountains of the, the rock and dirt and everything from digging up the ground. But they were also hollow as yeah. chimneys belching out it, it, gases exactly and that's exactly what it was for and it was it was just the worst pollution and uh, I've got a good description of Angban from the Silmarillion if you care Go to hear it. it and he being free gathered all his servants that he could find and came to the ruins of Angband there he delved anew his vast vaults and dungeons and above their gates he reared the threefold peaks of Thangorodrim and a great reek of dark smoke was ever wreathed about them. There countless became the hosts of his beasts and his demons, and the race of orcs, bred long before, grew and multiplied in the bowels of the earth. Dark now fell the shadow on Beleriand, as is told hereafter. But in Angband, Morgoth forged for himself a great crown of iron, and he called himself King of the World. In token of this, he set the Silmarils in his crown. His hands were burned black by the touch of these hallowed jewels, and black they remained ever after. Nor was he ever free from the pain of the burning, and the anger of the pain. That crown he never took from his head, though its weight became a deadly weariness. Never, but once only, did he depart for a while secretly from his domain in the north, Seldom indeed did he leave the deep places of his fortress, but governed his armies from his northern throne, and once only also did he himself wield weapon while his realm lasted. So I'm just going to point uh, two things out there. It says he only left the north once. Yeah. That's when he goes to corrupt humans. Mm. He steals away to the east. He appears as, as a, a god to humans. And that's what causes us to stop being able to speak to Eru Iluvatar. Because we used to be able to speak to him before that. Yeah. And the second time is once only did he himself wield weapon while his realm lasted. Because he's a big scary cat. Exactly. But that's when he fights Fingolfin. Who comes to his doors at Angband. And they yeah. have a fight. And he was, sca- yeah, he was scared to fight Fingolfin. Aye, but yeah, so he turns back up, pretty sad state of affairs, fucks the world up a bit more, and then tries to pick up where Atumno left off. And while he's at Angband, he he, uh, he does a couple of other things. He kidnaps one of Feanor's sons by trickery, and hangs him by his wrist from the peak of Thangorodrim. And do you know how long he's there? I do want to know, it's made me feel sick. 30 years. So he's hanging by his wrist from a mountain, from an unbreakable iron chain and cuff, for 30 years. Before he's rescued by, I think it's his, I think it's his cousin, Fingon, and the giant eagle Thorondor, who we discussed in our eagles episode. So, do you think he'll have a really weak arm or a really strong arm? Um, unfortunately, spoilers for you. Fingon cuts his arm, off, his hand off, so he can get him out with a chain. So he's what? Yeah. So his cousin, it's so he's he's called Mydros or Mythros, depending on your pronunciation. He's the eldest son of Feanor, and he becomes kind of like... How do I put this? He's probably the least cunty of Feanor's sons, but is still a massive cunt. What if that guy had been... like He was like, I could have easily cut my hand off to begin with, but I really wanted to keep that hand. Yeah, he does He does say, like, kill me at the beginning. Yeah. So don't, don't chop off my hand. I've, I could have done that easily when I first got locked up in this chain. I wanted to keep that. It's my best hand. Well, it seems like Mydros just um, never saw 127 hours, so didn't know what to do. Maybe. Anyway, he is... He's a ginger lad. He's very handsome. Very, very handsome. But he's still a war criminal. So bear I'm that in to mind. Say that's my type. <laughs> just if he's a lot of people's types. He he is a lot of people's type. But we'll leave that for now. So Angband remains the seat of power, and the third big battle of Beleriand in the first age is called Dagor Aglareb, which means the glorious battle. And what happens here 
is Morgoth gets too big for his boots and he overextends his for- his forces and he sends pretty much everyone out of Angband to fuck up the elves. But he wasn't counting on how well prepared the Noldor were. So the Noldor elves had recently come back to Middle-earth after the whole business with Feanor. Yeah. And were too busy. He thought, Morgoth thought, they'll be too busy to fight me. Oh boy, was he wrong. They did fight and they fought well indeed. So the elves, mostly Noldor, chased the orcs back to Angband and they proceed to sit outside. And they sit outside for 400 years and this is called the Siege of Angband. So for a long time, Angband becomes us during COVID. You can't go outside because anyone you meet might kill you. And the siege is broken after 400 years when Morgoth gets fed up and suddenly from Thangorodrim comes forth lava. He sends a spurt of lava out through and it messes up the land and it spits a choking dust into the air from burning everything. Yeah. And this causes so much damage that it changes the name of a place. The plains outside of Angband used to be called Ardgalin which means green region in Sindarin. But after this, they become known as Anfaugleif, which means by gasping dust. So it's pretty fucking bad. Harsh. So it goes from a meadow to a charred and burnt desert, essentially. Like rolling hills and meadows to a a charred desert. Yeah. And it's at this battle, um, I think, did I mention the name of the battle? I think the the Battle of Sudden Flame, which is the Dagor Bragalak, I think. Yeah, you did mention it. Did it? Oh, okay, right. Yeah, there was another one, which was Dagor Aglareb, which was the glorious battle, which causes the Siege of Angband. Then the Siege of Angband is broken by the Dagor, uh, Dagor Bragalak, which Dagor is the Bragalak, which is the Battle of Sudden Flame. And it's this, it's the Battle of uh, the Bragalak where Glaurung the Dragon emerges fully grown and leading a huge army of orcs. He comes from Angband and really messes shit up. And you know, that, that is pretty much the history of Angband and Autumn, though. There's only a couple more things to really kind of wrap off that they're mentioned again. So, this is until the, the end of the First Age. There's Thangorodrim eventually gets broken. And that gets broken when Ancalagon the Black falls on the mountains, when Erendil kills him. And Ancalagon the Black, biggest dragon to have ever lived, absolutely 100-weight chonker. <laughs> Just big chunky lad. Likes a chippy tea. Uh, again, go back and listen to our episode on dragons if you want to know more about him. It's not much to know. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, he either... Uh, there's a debate, right, about whether he was so big he actually broke the mountains or it's more of, like, interpreted... Like, he... You know, like... Uh, Is it, it a metaphor? Might be, like, he was broken upon the mountainside. You know, kind of like... But I choose to think that he was just that big because yeah. it's easier to think. That's really the only debate, Frank Gallagher, to be honest. Uh, then after that, there's the tale of Angband in Beren and Luthien, which is where they have to sneak into it to steal a Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth. And I was having a look through this morning, and that cheeky bastard, J.R. Tolkien, when Beren is cutting a crown for, uh, cutting a Silmaril from Morgoth's crown, yeah, the knife snaps, and Tolkien says it was the treacherous smith in Nargothrond, uh, sorry, Nogrod, and I was like, the fuck? Like, how the fuck's <laughs> that a dwarf's fault? Like, what? It's a man, Beren, yeah. with his elf wife, using a knife he took from another elf. So, like, how the fuck's that the dwarf's fault? And Beren got you're greedy. A poor workman blames his tools. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we, we discussed vampires and werewolves uh, the other week, right? But this is um, this they both get into Angband by disguising themselves as a vampire yeah. and a werewolf, and there's a description of of the court being full of monsters, and there's a, a line in the verse where it says that there was adders and wolves about the throne that have all been put to sleep. So if it's you're funny ma- how the same sort of animal characters depictions turn up in a lot of hells well yeah the serpent uh, you know the serpent in, in the bible yeah. is is probably the main one and then uh, yeah luthien puts them all to sleep and that that's pretty much like the, the last description we get of angband so for anyone listening that is all the law about autumnal and angband pretty you much dare start talking about language the language will come but we've got a little 
other bit to talk about first. So I read a very interesting paper. We're going to look at some mention, some other mentions of hell and like less than ideal afterlife within Tolkien's work. Yeah. And there's a, a paper called The Halls of Waiting, Death and Afterlife in Middle-earth by Charles Wilson. And it appeared in Journal of the Fantastic in the Arts, uh, Volume 9, in the Tolkien issue, which was released in 1998. And it talks about the, the different depictions of, of various afterlives. So we know that Atumno and Angband essentially are the that they are hell on earth, right? Yeah. That's pretty much what we've got. But Morgoth is banished to the void after the War of Wrath. So is the void actual hell? Well, that's what we're going to have a look at because some of the earliest depictions of hell that I could dig out were it's not a place of like fire and brimstone the idea of hell and i think this came from i think this came from uh, it was an augustine writing it was being cut off from god completely yeah it was being cut off from god's love and light and i mentioned to you there's a book i absolutely love called the scarlet gospels and that's written by clive barker and in that book lucifer purposefully kills himself and he makes a machine to keep himself dead because it's the only way he can stay in eternal slumber because the punishment of being made to rule over hell in this pit of emptiness and despair and being cut off from his creator's love and light drove him almost to insanity. It was unbearable. Like he was his favourite son and he fell. And so he chose to kill himself. And this machine, like, it jams spears into him like all over. And it that is the only thing that can keep him dead. Because yeah. as soon as the spears are removed, he wakes back up again. He's fucking furious. But that, it's the idea, like, one of the oldest versions of hell is being cut off from God's light. And I think that's very much present in here because we see that the void is reserved for the worst. Sauron. Morgoth. Maybe the Nazgul. Maybe Saruman. So I'm going to read a little bit from this paper, right? The frightening emptiness and isolation is the terror which would seem to await those who practice evil and turn to the Dark Lord. Gandalf makes this very clear in his stern command to Morgul when he confronts the chief of the Nazgul at the gates of Gondor. Go back to the abyss prepared for you. Fall into the nothingness that awaits you and your master. These words confirm that Sauron and his servants are condemned to nothingness and an emptiness reminiscent of the early Christian idea that evil is the absence of good and the worst torment of those suffering in hell is the absence of and separation from the holy presence of God. Saruman likewise suffers this end, as after his death we are told that the spirit rising from his shrunken body is dissipated by a wind from the west, and with a sigh dissolved into nothing. And Gandalf says of his fellow wizard, Alas for Saruman, he has withered altogether. Which I just think is just that's a really sad kind of ending like and that's what i mean is like i feel like the idea of a hell that's fire and brimstone and roiling baths of shit and ovens and freezing cold that that's quite magnificent in comparison exactly it's too i think it's too Too exciting it's too exciting to be properly scary it's like a hero's death exactly but the idea a martyr the idea of wandering alone in the darkness for eternity or not even that might not even be dark. This might just be grey, like just completely cut off from everyone and everything, knowing that you are completely outside of everything you've ever known. I think that is that that's that's hell. I really do. And there's another one. Um, another so from this 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 next uh, sorry same paper, but there's another one where it talks about Nazgul, the ring bearers, and false immortality. And it talks about um, when Frodo slips the ring on at Weathertop and actually entered the world of the Ringwraith and saw them as they, they truly are. Undead creatures, totally subservient to the Dark Lord, forced to remain in Middle-earth beyond their time, unable to die or find rest. In this terrible state, they share in the evil essence of their master and know the searing emptiness caused by his separation from the One, reflected in their dreadful cry which freezes the blood of so many characters in the story. And, in the final scenes, 
even their seeming immortality comes to an end, as with the destruction of the power of Sauron, they are destroyed forever and condemned to the everlasting nothingness, which is the fate of all those who follow the Dark Lord. To a lesser extent, each of the Hobbit ring bearers experience this false immortality. Both Gollum and Bilbo speak of being stretched out or thinned out by the long lives given to them by the ring. Other Hobbits comment on the longevity and youthful appearance of both Bilbo and Frodo, who never appear to age. The image, however, is that of making something longer, not by adding more material, but by stretching it so that the existing material covers more area but is less substantial which is just that's pretty fucking that's pretty sad thinking about actually like, I always think like oh, I'd love to be immortal but the idea of you're existing but it's because like you're weakness isn't yeah it? you're stretching out your you can't enjoy your longer life yeah exactly you're stretching out your fully. essential being yeah it's just oh and there's um the last one where last bit we'll talk about is from a letter, uh, letter 172 from, from Tolkien, where he says, uh, so this paper says, after a brief survey of the immortality and afterlives of the various peoples of Middle-earth, we can perhaps more clearly understand the statement of Tolkien, which opens uh, the paper. His world concept is clearly Christian, but without the external trappings of Christianity. His Eru has established definite standards of right and wrong. There are specific rules to be obeyed, and, cor- uh, and corresponding punishments and rewards for those who fail to do or fail to do so. Thus, Theoden is confident that he'll go to the halls of his fathers uh, in, in the hereafter of his final battle, while the fate of Denethor is not so certain because he broke one of the cardinal laws, suicide. Aragorn can be expected to be reunited with Arwen in his afterlife, the timeless halls, while Morgul and Saruman are destined for the abyss of nothingness. Tolkien then posits definite places and states of the future, but gives few specific details of standards. Indeed, he has done that as he explained in his letter to uh, someone, Murray, in letter 172. He has the slightest awe, and then he says, I have cut out practically all references to anything like religion, to its cults or practices in the imaginary world, so that the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. Which I find utterly fascinating. Yeah, that's uh, that's, that's given me a lot to think about. To be honest, I loved researching this. But that that is pretty much what we want to talk about today. So that's Angband, Atumno, some of the other afterlives or hells mentioned in Tolkien. I'm rethinking my whole life. Yeah, and a little bit of uh, a little bit of, of real life stuff. Which is fascinating because uh, we know that you know, like fire and brimstone type hell, it was, I think it was like Middle Ages by the time it started to like really take in popularity, and then in recent decades we've started to see that the main Christian churches like you take away the mad American cunts um, and and the mad like evangelical cunts all over the world, and, and apart from them, you see the other like sects of Christianity kind of starting to play down the concept of hell again. Yeah, it's not popular anymore. It's it's not, no, it's like fear's not doing it as much anymore. But then obviously you've still got like the fire and brimstone preachers. Um, I was watching a documentary earlier and there was, if you really want to look at like fucked up hells, have a look at like Hinduism and oh, I, Buddhism. Oh, that's what I was reading about before. Yeah, well, like uh, with Samsara, like the great wheel with yeah. Yama holding the wheel. And I was watching a documentary and it was saying about, um, you, you like, if you, you have to cross burning sands in some of them and if you stop you've got to lay down in this burning sand for a hundred years not being able to brush anything off and you'd have like molten metal poured down your throat and like some of those eastern religions get really fucking creative with their the ancient torture Egyptians weren't as extreme but you did have to go through challenges yeah so I asked you about this so like I haven't had time to gather your thoughts like what can you tell us about the Egyptian afterlife in particular well, the bad side just had to travel every night so every night when the sun set, they would have to travel to the afterlife. Um, and that's why if you were richer, you could have more incantations and spells across your body because you could afford it, like the craftsmanship. But you also needed them spells in order to get through these like traps and all these trials and tribulations each night so you knew the spell to get through each one of them yeah. easily 
What happened to the people who failed the feather test? Like Anubis ate their heart, right? The crocodile got you. Is that Anubis? No. No, Anubis, Anubis is, a, is jack- a jackal. Was it Set who's the crocodile? Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to check. But anyway, so what happened? So like, they just eat your heart, then do you just stop existing? Yeah. Is done. that it? Just existence done? The thing is, is that it's like um, the Egyptians, they carve their names everywhere because by remembering them and saying their names, it would uh, resurrect them. Oh, is that like um, that so saying? If you were gone, you were gone. Is that like that saying of like you, you die two deaths, like once when you die and once when your name's said for the last time? Yeah. Oh. Well then. Sobek. Sobek, the crocodile god. Fair enough. There was something I had to cut out of the episode that I would have loved to talk about, but it would have took up literal hours, which is to talk about Dante's Inferno, with the you know the the, the circles of hell and what have you. I don't know how familiar Tolkien was with it. I imagine he would have read it and he would have known the Divine Comedy quite well. But I don't know if any other themes made it into his legendarium. If they did, please reach out and tell me. I'm happy to talk about this forever. Um, in particular, like the, I love all the spiritual stuff around Tolkien. And I'm not sponsored. Uh, it's got nothing to do with them whatsoever. But I am part of the Tolkien Society. And on the 26th of November, let me double check my calendar, there is an event for members of the Tolkien Society, but I think anybody can um, can sign up. Yeah, 26, Sunday the 26th of November, there is a seminar on put on by the Tolkien Society over Zoom. Anybody, I think anybody can join up, or if not, just members of the Society. I might put that in my calendar and you can have the it's child. In, it's in the calendar, yeah, <laughs> but there is... Um, all day events like papers on Tolkien and religion motifs and stuff like that and I can't wait for it so yeah give that a shout but other than that I think we're done today Becca Ooh. is there anything you want to add? Um, no just that I enjoyed that not quite as much as um, werewolves and vampires Yeah. but hell is very exciting Fuck yeah. Right, we'll be back in two weeks. So until then, I hope you have a good day wherever you are and we'll uh, we'll catch you later. Bye. Bye.